Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hello, everyone. One of my favorite tweets of all time, one I think about constantly, is that old Bill Corbett tweet where he was shopping for bananas. He posted a picture of a banana that he got in the store, which just had a little sticker on it that had, like, the Star Wars logo, and he tweeted, why is Star Wars on my banana? Why does my banana have to be Star Wars? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. And I thought about that because a couple of weeks ago, I was out at the corner store, you know, getting stuff that you get at a corner store, and one of the things I got was dental floss picks. And this means nothing for our listening audience, but this is a visual aid that I have here just for Luke because I want him to see. Now these are <laughs> these are Star these are Star Wars floss picks. It's the brand is called Firefly, but it's got Star Wars. It's got a Star Wars character on it who's got a helmet um, and an orange lightsaber, and they're uh, they're orange floss picks. As right, well. right. So I got this because this was the only floss pick option at the store. <laughs> And now I see this every morning when I open the cupboard in the bathroom. Boy, Disney really does have full spectrum dominance, doesn't it? (laughs) And I resent it more and more every day because I understand that all merch on some level is an advertisement for the brand, an advertisement for the corporation. Like I get that if I get a Darth Vader action figure, that is ultimately, it's a commercial enterprise. But the thing is, when I get a Darth Vader action figure, I get a Darth Vader action figure. <laughs> like, I get a thing that looks like the guy from the movie, and I can play with it. Yeah, floss picks have nothing to do with Star Wars, arguably. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, I, so I guess the character, who I don't know who that is. I don't know. He's got a helmet on. This is not connected to any particular Star Wars product. It, it does, it's not the Mandalorian. It's not one of the movies, I don't think. It just says Star Wars, and it's got a character on it. It, it really is quite an extraordinary artifact. I mean, I know this is not the best, uh, you know, medium for for the use of props, but uh, just to describe it a little more, you know, everything about it is just, you know, generic packaging that you would expect on a product like this. It's boasting a stronger thread so it doesn't break, uh, describes what it is between the teeth pick. Uh, there are instructions in English and French on the back. That's the, the beautiful national experiment called Canada in action right there, folks. Um, then there's instructions for how to use it. The only other thing uh, worthy of note is the barcode and something that says, please do not litter. Oh, and uh, made in China as well. <laughs> um, but then besides that, there's just a, but there are a few other things that very clearly don't belong. Uh, there is a Disney logo and there is a website that implores you to visit www.starwars.com. Uh, and then there's the brand name Firefly and then Star Wars, which kind of subsumes the brand actually providing the product, even though it has no reason to. Pretty amazing. Yeah, and it's not tied to any movie or anything. So it's just advertising the concept. The, it's advertising the continuous <laughs> presence of Star Wars as a brand. And I resent it so much because, okay, I guess these things, I guess the floss picks, the plastic is orange, just like the lightsaber that we see. But I'm sorry, I don't think that that is enough to make this Star Wars floss picks. Because, like, to fill to fill the end of the bargain, I think you would have to put, like, little R2-D2s on these things. You would have to put, they're black with stars. They should be shaped like lightsabers. Well, yeah, exactly. That's how you'd sell this to a kid, which I assume is well, hopefully is who it's for. So it's not in any meaningful sense a Star Wars product. <laughs> you are not getting any extra textual Star Wars value out of it. But what you are getting is an ad for Star Wars every time you open your bathroom cupboard in the morning. And every day I just resent it a little more and more. 
Now, of course, if your buddy Andy Warhol were here, he'd paint your uh, Star Wars dental floss package and you'd be like, that's brilliant. That's great. Well, it's because there would be a, a layer of remove. There would be, there would, it would be ironic. Look, well, if this thing is bad, then surely a layer removed from it is worse. No, I highly disagree. You look, you look at a Campbell's soup can, then you look at a meticulously painted Campbell's soup can, but also it's flat. There's no, there's no shading. There's no texture. That's art. I'm dead serious. <laughs> well, you know, uh, you brought up Bill Corbett. And uh, speaking of Bill Corbett, I actually watched an episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000 last night with friend of the show, Alex Ross. It was an episode I had not seen before. Clearly a classic, an instant classic for me. And that was Werewolf. Oh, love it. War- it. Warwolf. Warwolf. <laughs> Starring Joe Estevez. <laughs> Absolutely incredible film. Uh, yeah, among other things, made me aware of the existence of Joe Estevez who uh, apparently did some of the voiceovers or all of the voiceovers in an uncredited role in Apocalypse Now because because he sounds exactly like Martin Sheen. Joe Estevez is a treasured part of the Tim Heidecker on cinema universe. He often appears as himself on (laughs) on cinema. They'll bring him in as like a resident expert. And on the spinoff show, Decker, which is like their action movie parody, he plays the president. Oh, man. Which is very funny because who who else famously plays a president on TV? (laughs) Martin Sheen, right? So yeah, Joe Estevez has had a nice little uh, rebirth in recent years. But I recommend anyone check out Joe Estevez's IMDb page. Hundreds of films. Hundreds of films, not one of which you've heard of except for Apocalypse Now. Yeah, Werewolf, very tellingly, uh, like a lot of films featured on Mystery Science Theater, you know, the largest part of the entry is about its appearance on Mystery Science Theater, (laughs) which is never a good sign. But uh, yeah, incredibly funny. Is that a foreign film in some way? It has it has the feeling of one of those movies that's like an Italian or a Spanish movie that's pretending to be American. That's uh, a really good question. I mean, a lot of the humor is running out of the fact that everything in the movie feels vaguely discordant. Like they're playing pool in a biker bar and there's like a harpsichord. Like the, the music is like harpsichord music. A lot of the characters sound vaguely Eastern European, although they're clearly supposed to be playing like, you know, salt of the earth, every people in the American hinterland or something. So many of the, and I, I don't, know if this movie was Italian or not, but you know, so many of the Italian exploitation films of like the 70s, the 80s uh, were not really meant for the Italian domestic market. They were made with the hopes of being sold abroad. And that includes, by the way, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, which is supposed to look like an American film, right? And so there's this weird cognitive dissonance in so many of them. There's a good film from the 60s called The Last Man on Earth starring Vincent Price. It's an adaptation of I Am Legend, and it's set in New York, and it's filmed in Rome. And you have never seen a less convincing New York anywhere. You know, there's a filmmaker named Lucio Fulci who is often billed in the American prints as uh, uh, Lewis Fuller. <laughs> and that's that's how you know it's an American film, folks. <laughs> Incidentally, Bill Corbett, if you happen to be listening, please come on the show and do do an episode on Werewolf or any other episode of Mystery Science Theater with us. Boy, it's a, there's a lot of self-flattery in thinking that he listens to this podcast, <laughs> but I would I would love for that to be true. <laughs> Where oh I guess we should have a little bit of kind of uh, capital P politics discussion before we get into our movie this week. Yes, please. <laughs> I had a really interesting conversation with uh, Ryan Grimm, uh, the DC bureau chief at The Intercept this week, um, and he was explaining to me 
the kind of ins and outs of the very complicated congressional wranglings that are happening right now. Of course, by the time this episode is released, uh, things may have changed. Things are moving very quickly. So I want to get that caveat in right now. But basically, he made the case to me as someone who was very immersed in the Affordable Care Act debate back in the, uh, the first term of the Obama presidency that the congressional left actually has a lot more power and influence right now. Something that's really helped uh, the situation is the fact that this particular phase of spending, this particular phase of what's broadly called the Biden agenda, was split into two earlier this year. And, you know, the initial idea, uh, at least in some quarters, was that bifurcating this thing was actually going to kind of knock the wind out of the sails of some of the more, you know, progressive elements, the kind of things that, you know, members of the uh, Congressional Progressive Caucus are pushing. And so you ended up with this situation where, you know, in the most extreme media rendering, uh, the so-called bipartisan bill, which climate advocates in particular say is actually a step backwards, you know, it's a bad bill, it's not just an inadequate bill, that's often been treated as this thing that's, that's where all the hard-headed practice serious, you know, moderate stuff is. And then the reconciliation bill, um, which, you know, reconciliation is a process where you can pass things and avoid the filibuster, you know, using this process of budget reconciliation. That's been treated in some places anyway. That's all the ideological stuff. It's extraneous. You know, th those are the goodies. You know, that's the sort of boutique liberal or, or left part of this whole process. And I mean, of course, that has it exactly backwards, but this is how, uh, you know, this is how the legislative process in the United States, I feel like, has been covered for, you know, 20 or 30 years now, probably, and it's only gotten worse. So much of the stuff that happens that's, that's you know, bad is invariably framed as kind of, you know, moderate and sensible and practical and, you know, the kind of stuff that, you know, reasonable adults can agree on, etc., and then anything that might actually improve people's lives is always discussed as if it's kind of like, you know, a perk. It really is very twisted the way that this stuff is often discussed. I feel like it's a reflection of the fact that, you know, very little that's good has come out of this process for decades. So much of the culture of the Beltway is steeped in this very 1990s kind of Clinton era thinking where the government doing anything, you know, Clinton era and also post Reaganite way of thinking where, you know, the, the state doing anything where it plays an active role in, you know, providing social services in a way that's not, you know, brutally means tested or explicitly designed to incentivize people to go back and work in minimum wage jobs that are degrading and awful. You know, anything that isn't that is like a goodie or a perk. And you, the braying mob, has no right to expect that the people you elect are gonna do anything other uh, than serve your employers, because that's fundamentally what this is and, and, you know, what they're here to do. Of course, the big focus in a lot of this has been, well, it was Joe Manchin for a while, and now it's very much Kirsten Cinema. I don't wanna get too much into Kirsten Cinema, but I did want to bring her up um, because of this Axios article that's been making the rounds today. <laughs> Will, did you see this? Yes, I did. <laughs> so, you know. She comes off pretty cool, I think. <laughs> so it's pretty amazing because, so this is a, this is a pretty amazing genre. You know, it's, a, it's kind of micro genre if you follow this stuff. It's like a form of centrist kitsch, I would call it. Like these very cringeworthy attempts to make extremely middle of the, well, middle of the roads too generous, you know, corporatist politicians who go to Congress to do the bidding of, you know, multinational companies and Wall Street bankers and all the rest of it. This genre is all about trying to make them look cool. And it's like, what if there was a centrist squad? <laughs> right, you know right. What I mean? 
Do you remember? Do you remember when that was? Uh, well, that was. A thing? I, I do remember I think there seeing was also the an video. Attempt, yeah. I think there was also an attempt to get like a right wing squad going <laughs> as well. I don't know, like Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert or whatever. But just for those who uh, you know have better things to do than read Axios articles on Kirsten Cinema that they found on Twitter, the framing of this was Kirsten Cinema's allies have some free advice for anyone trying to bully the wine drinking triathlete into supporting Biden's 3.5 trillion budget bill. She doesn't play by Washington's rules and she's prepared to walk away. Okay, God, I have so much to say about this. So something that Ken Klippenstein uh, pointed out, which I think is really useful, I think it was Ken, is that this budget bill, which is, you know, it's three, it's it's called the 3.5 trillion budget bill. You know, this is spending over, it might even be 10 years, maybe it's eight years. I, I can't remember. I can't remember. I don't have it in front of me. But, you know, if you ever see the Pentagon budget reported, it's always reported in discrete annual chunks, which makes it look a lot smaller. You never read a story about, you know, the $5 trillion Pentagon budget bill or whatever. <laughs> but that's effectively what they are. So that's one thing. She doesn't play by Washington's rules is another great part. Of, you know, th- this is like part and parcel of this genre. People who literally are projections of, you know, Washington's rules and live by them and believe in them fiercely and passionately are always presented as like, they're the, they're the dissidents. You know, that's, a, that's another hallmark of this genre. They're heroically dissenting from the ideologues on the left and the right. You know, the one person who has successfully campaigned on playing by Washington's rules is Joe Biden. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think he's a little bit anomalous in that uh, in that respect. Then again, if it wasn't for coronavirus, I don't think he would, he would have been elected president. Anyway, the real reason I wanted to discuss this was, I cannot get the words wine drinking triathlete out of my head. Uh, I just want to say, wine drinking does not constitute an affectation or a personality quirk. All I could think of was that classic Onion article, I'm quite eccentric with an accepted societal norms. You know, this is like when people say that they're like a bit out there and edgy, and then they go on to tell you about how they're really into like the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. There, and- there is a huge <laughs> contingent of people on Twitter who were uh, former high school triathletes and now are uh, kind of into wine, you know? <laughs> and I think they're trying to tap into that demographic. Anyway, I don't know what's going to come out of this this whole uh, process with the so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill and the and the budget reconciliation one. But if nothing else, I hope we get more of this kind of centrist kitsch. I love it. Can't get enough. Just to ease us into a conversation about 1954's Godzilla, I would like to quote the opening paragraph of Roger Ebert's review. Uh, And I know we've been a little hard on old Roger on this podcast over the years, but, you know, every now and then he's asking for it. This was written in 2004 when the movie was released in its original Japanese form for the first time in America. He wrote, Regaled for 50 years by the stupendous idiocy of the American version of Godzilla, Audiences can now see the original Japanese version, which is equally idiotic, but properly decoded was the Fahrenheit 9-11 of its time. Both films come after fearsome attacks on their nations, Holy shit. embody <laughs> urgent warnings, and even incorporate similar dialogue, such as, The report is of such dire importance it must not be made public. 
is this from 1954 Tokyo or 2004 Washington? You know what this sounds like? It sounds like a bad version of our show. Yeah. <laughs> like there's a parallel dimension where the Michael and Us podcast uh, consists of takes exactly like this. And you know what's interesting? Uh, revisiting 1954's Godzilla, I am struck by how much it reminded me of Fahrenheit 9-11. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we chose it after death of a president for a reason. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, look, I've always loved the Godzilla movies. Uh, I knew we'd eventually pull this one out of a hat eventually um, because this movie embodies so much of what I love about movies. Movies as collective unconscious. I'll just say, you know, I've said on other podcasts, so I'm sorry for repeating myself, but when I was watching these movies when I was 10 or 11, I think the only criteria I had for appreciating something like this was it's either good or it's so bad it's good. And, you know, you see these movies and there's a guy in a rubber suit, for God's sake. They, there's a there's a man in a rubber suit and he looks like a man in a rubber suit. And there's this original 1954 film, which is often considered like the good one. And then after that, there are a lot of sequels where Godzilla becomes uh, kind of wacky. He becomes a savior of mankind. He's sliding across the landscape on his tail and kicking another monster in the stomach. Eventually, uh, I came to realize, oh, this is actually quite beautiful, the aesthetic of these films. And, you know, in Japan, they get it. They understand that it looks like a man in a rubber monster suit. And particularly, you know, over the last couple of decades as movies have become sort of CGI eyesores. There's something beautiful about the weight and the texture of a Godzilla. Um, there's something beautiful about the rubber of his of his flesh and the intricate, beautiful model cities. Anyway, it's never more beautiful than this 1954 original, which is uh, one of only two in the series in black and white, and uh, I think beautifully photographed. I mean, the Japanese film industry was one of those film industries like Hollywood that was very technically advanced. It was actually quite a bit like Hollywood in the sense that, you know, the studios had a lot of power and th they had a lot of people under contract and those people had kind of limited mobility and limited career prospects, limited chances to express individual artistry. You know, there are notable exceptions. And presumably this film uh, was one of the first kind of wave of films to come out after the American occupation was over as well. Yeah, certainly. 1954. Part of a wave of films that incorporated so many of the greatest Japanese films that uh, we all still know and love. That sounds pretty hacky, but, but it happens to be true. This film was made by Toho Studios, which is the same studio that was Akira Kurosawa's home. Its director, Ishiro Honda, later went on to be Kurosawa's assistant director on so many of his later films like Kagamusha and Ran and Dreams. All films we'll do an episode on as well, I'm sure. For many years, I think the Godzilla movies, you know, they were seen in America in cropped cut versions, versions that looked very bad. And there wasn't a great understanding that these movies you know, the first couple of them, at least, were really A-level Japanese productions with A-level Japanese talent. You know, this one, I think, was the most expensive Japanese film of its day. Well, even. and I assume their reputation in the West for a long time as well, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, was that they were kind of a little bit silly and a little mm. bit corny. Uh, whereas, you know, you watch a movie like this, and I think even without much context, it's very clearly quite a deep reflection of, you know, the post-war consciousness in Japan. There's an interesting instigating incident for the production of this film. 
on March 1st, 1954, there was a Japanese fishing boat that had experienced fallout, uh, you know, radiation poisoning from U.S. hydrogen bomb tests that were happening near the Bikini Atoll. And, you know, everyone was contaminated. Uh, all the cargo was contaminated. And this led to a massive backlash among the Japanese public huge letter writing campaigns and demonstrations and so really helped birth or at least fuel the anti-nuclear movement in Japan. This would have been nine years after Hiroshima and Nagasaki and so this movie was very much a response to that as well as a response to certain of the giant creature features happening in the United States. Beast of 20,000 Fathoms was a Warner Brothers film that is often cited as an influence on this movie. And I think the main reason I find this original film interesting is, you know, 1945, you have two bombs dropped on Japan. Nine years later, the only country to have direct experience of a nuclear bomb, uh, you get this movie. And that's very interesting. It's interesting in the same way that certain of the superhero movies that have been so popular since 9-11 have clearly been working through the trauma of 9-11. You know, you have the 9-11 attacks, and then a decade later, you have the first Avengers movie, where all of these superheroes are in midtown Manhattan fighting this massive alien attack, enormous death and destruction, skyscrapers falling over. And certainly movies can be an art form that express one artist's point of view. A Stanley Kubrick movie certainly expresses Stanley Kubrick's point of view. But another thing they can do is express that collective unconscious. This movie, I don't think it would be accurate to say it's the work of a single auteur, although Several very talented people did contribute to it, like the director Ashiro Honda, the producer Tomoyuki Tanaka, the effects artist Aji Superaya. All of those people can claim some level of authorship. But really, it's just it's this coalescing of a lot of traumas and a lot of feelings that were happening in Japan at the time. And because this movie was such a commercial enterprise, it's not an art film. It's a it's a commercial enterprise. You can learn so much from a society about what people are willing to pay to see at that particular moment. Would people have been ready for this movie seven years earlier? Would they have been ready for it even three years earlier? I don't know, but they were certainly ready for it in 1954 and then for decades after. It's worth noting, I think, that Japan, after the war, you know, had an, and still has nuclear non-proliferation as public policy. If I'm not mistaken, I think that that was, you know, initially imposed by the United States after the war. You know, they didn't want Japan to develop nuclear weapons, but... There was also overwhelming public opposition in Japan to the development of nuclear weapons. And uh, in preparation for the episode, I looked up kind of recent polls on this, and the opposition is still very strong. Even though nuclear themes are very central, you know, undeniably central to the Godzilla mythos, it's worth pointing out as well that major Japanese cities like Tokyo were also firebombed during the Second World War. From what I remember uh, from my teenage obsession with the Second World War, working class areas of Tokyo in particular were, you know, very much, you know, the main building material was wood. And so, you know, huge numbers of people were killed in these absolutely horrific fire bombings. So even though nuclear themes are obviously a big part of, uh, of this film, you know, there were certain shots. You know, the, the shot that was actually most memorable to me was the one where the newscaster is uh, rattling off different neighborhoods that are gone. And there's a skyline shot that the newscaster describes as a sea of flames, you know, engulfing the city. It's a really, really memorable and horrifying shot. And I feel like something like that probably harkens back to the firebombing of Tokyo as much as the dropping of the atomic bomb bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Ah! 
By the way, just thinking about 9-11, I recall in the months and weeks after 9-11, there was quite a bit of discourse, quite a bit of fretting from Hollywood and from people covering Hollywood about, well, will people want to ever continue watching movies that depict destruction on a mass scale? I mean, you'll remember in the years leading up to 9-11, there were so many, there was a wave of movies like Independence Day. Godzilla. Godzilla. And, you know, I was thinking again about Adam Curtis's hypernormalization, which envisioned that wave of movies as being a society that has everything, a society that is the unquestioned superpower imagining, well, what happens if if that was destroyed? And I don't know, you watch the American Godzilla from 1998 with Matthew Broderick. I mean, it's amazing if you watch it now how glib the film is. There's all this destruction and there are all these like stupid jokes about, oh, we wanted to go shopping. There's that whole weird B story with the French. Do you remember that? Oh, yes, he wanted his American coffee. <laughs> or, or, no, no, he hated American coffee. Sorry, that was it. That, uh, that film I've always found intrinsically fascinating because like many of the worst blockbusters, it's just an incredible monument to the failure of capitalism to allocate resources <laughs> efficiently. You know, when you think about how much, you know, the average person has to penny pinch to afford essentials, and then you kind of scale that up, whatever a typical household budget is, you scale that up to a blockbuster like that that costs hundreds of millions. And, you know, this is what that money can buy. If you have it, if you don't believe me, watch the movie. It's terrible. Here's what I'll say in its defense. Great marketing campaign. <laughs> Do you remember how fun it was back in 98 where you'd see a bus and it would have a poster on the side of the bus? fin on it or something? It it, it said, his foot is the size of this bus. Godzilla coming July, whatever the date was. Or or like, you know, he's as tall as this building, you know. Or it also had that great tagline, size does matter. Oh, uh, God. And the Taco Bell Chihuahua. Oh, my God. Summer Godzilla. The only thing thing missing was the movie. (laughs) I actually do quite like the uh, the current Godzilla trilogy. I mean, they're not brilliant films, but they're certainly entertaining. I liked the last one, Godzilla vs. Kong. I thought it was fun. I thought it was fun seeing Kong in zero gravity. <laughs> For formality's sake, I will tell folks the plot of 1954's Godzilla. It begins with a harrowing sequence depicting the destruction of a Japanese freighter ship somewhere in the Pacific. And it initially looks like a hurricane, but it's linked to a series of mysterious incidents in the area, such as a lot of the aquatic life has disappeared in the area. Uh, Natives on an island off the coast of Japan say that it is the work of a beast known as Gojira, uh, which, by the way, a fun fact in Japan combines the Japanese words for gorilla and whale. Obviously, he was rechristened Godzilla for the American market. And Godzilla, he's some kind of ancient monster who has evolved into a towering beast because of underwater hydrogen bomb testing. This is something I really liked that I don't think is really a part of other Godzilla movies, or perhaps not in the same way. But I was struck in the first few minutes of the film that Godzilla's name came up, and I was thinking, wait, did I did I miss something? How do they know Godzilla's name already? How do they have a name for this? He hasn't even appeared. But in that scene, it's an elder on a small island, and the elder is sharing kind of traditional knowledge, you know, traditional wisdom about this creature that they already have a name for. You know, he seems to feature in the culture of the local fishermen, you know, and he's how they account for, you know, when there are no fish, you know, he's, e- he's eaten them all. And this is something I really love about Godzilla. I think it's pretty unambiguous in its critique of nuclear weapons. 
it's not merely kind of working through things in the way that perhaps uh, some of these American films you've mentioned do. It's pretty unambiguous in channeling the nuclear non-proliferation sentiment in Japan after the Second World War. You know, importantly, the catalyst for Godzilla's emergence or re-emergence is always something associated with modernity, you know, scientific tests, nuclear tests, something like that. But he himself is kind of an ancient and, and primal force. And this may sound corny, but I mean, if the figure of Godzilla means anything, it's don't fuck with nature. You know, <laughs> we shouldn't be conducting nuclear tests. We shouldn't be detonating uh, atomic weapons. This kind of reaction is what's supposed to be happening inside of a sun or a star. Like this isn't supposed to be happening on Earth. Yeah, and think of what Japan would have experienced in the nine years after the bombs were dropped. Just so many people with radiation poisonings, so much cancer, so many disabilities developing, so much probably destruction to the natural ecosystem. Like, it's not just the trauma of the actual incident that this movie's channeling, but having just lingered with the aftermath for so many years. Yeah, and I'm obviously very much in sympathy with, you know, the message that Godzilla has about the use of nuclear weapons and the testing of nuclear weapons. I hope to one day live in a world where there are no more nuclear weapons, where all of them have been dismantled. I don't think there's any moral uh, or political justification for their existence. And this being my first time uh, seeing the original Godzilla, I didn't know about the way the film ends, which is that, uh, spoiler, they're actually able to kill Godzilla using a super weapon that deprives cells, I guess, of oxygen and kind of causes them to rot. Yes, this comes out of a human love triangle story. There's Emiko, who is the daughter of a paleontologist investigating the Godzilla case. That character, by the way, played by uh, Takashi Shimura from Ikiru and other films. Emiko broke off her engagement to Dr. Serizawa, the brilliant but troubled and eyepatch-wearing scientist, uh, because she fell in love with Ogata, who's the captain of a ship. But Dr. Serizawa has developed this technology called the Oxygen Destroyer, and he tries to keep it a secret. He confides its existence to Emiko. Eventually, they convince Dr. Serizawa to use the technology to destroy Godzilla, but just after he's destroyed Godzilla, when he's underwater with it, he commits suicide. He cuts off the oxygen supply to his diving suit so that the knowledge will die with him. Right, because as he explains to the others, I mean, he initially doesn't want to use it because, you know, if you kill Godzilla, who's emerged because of these nuclear tests with the super weapon, well, now you've got a super weapon that's potentially even more destructive. And he explains to them, human beings are weak. And even if I destroy all of my experiments and my laboratory, I could still be coerced into giving someone the knowledge required to develop the super weapon again. So having never seen the film, uh, I didn't know about that ending. And I think that's as unambiguously a kind of anti-Cold War, anti-nuclear proliferation uh, message as you could possibly have. You know, the case for nuclear weapons, at least for people who advocate them, and sorry to get a bit literal and didactic here, but you know, the case for nuclear weapons to people who advocate them is always that they're defensive, you know, and that by developing nuclear weapons in one country, you're just embracing a kind of political realism since every country or, mo you know, many countries are going to develop these things. So if you develop them as well, what you're actually doing is precluding the possibility of nuclear war and of a nuclear first strike occurring. But of course, what you're really doing is making sure that the countermeasures uh, to these things get better and better. The missiles themselves, you know, get better and better. The warheads get stronger and stronger. And, you know, as you did during the Cold War, you just have an endless arms race. The stakes get higher and higher and, you know, apocalypse draws nearer and nearer. 
Now, Godzilla, of course, did reemerge after his untimely death at the end of this film, or at least <laughs> at least another Godzilla emerged. Well, I was going to say that there's, you know, there's a monologue uh, that one of the scientists does at the end of the film where he says, he says, history shows again and again how nature points out the folly of man. <laughs> I mean, basically, yeah, he says, he says, uh, well, Godzilla may be gone for now, but if there are more nuclear tests, I expect he'll come back. And, you know, there were more nuclear tests, and thank God, because we got so many <laughs> more Godzilla movies out of it. Godzilla is one of those icons who's found a way to adapt to whatever context he's in. I mean, as people know, in so many of the sequels, he becomes a hero. He becomes a defender of mankind. Uh, yeah, he, he comes to represent kind of nature restoring the balance after, you know, humankind has upset it. And in, in depictions of him, he's kind of ping-ponged back and forth between these two extremes, or he's occupied some territory sometimes between these two extremes. The recent American ones have depicted him more ambiguously, I think. Uh, sometimes he restores balance in the recent American films. Uh, sometimes he's a fearsome beast. As with any subject that has rabid fan circles, there's lots of debate in those fan circles about, you know, what's the true what, what's the true depiction of this character? You know, there are, there are certain fans who will say, oh, those those ones from the 70s where he's the defender of mankind, that's not that's not real. That's fake. That's disrespectful to the character. But I I don't know, like, at some point, there's kind of no arguing, like, if those movies were successful at the time, if this movie was successful at the time, that speaks just more towards what a certain segment of society wanted out of this icon at that particular time. And given that this character was so obviously a result of a historical trauma, he can always tell you something about, you know, where that society is in adapting to that trauma at that particular moment. A couple years ago in the film Shin Godzilla, that movie was clearly a response to the Fukushima nuclear disaster. And certain of the American ones, particularly the 2014 American one, clearly responding to 9-11 to some degree. It has a lot of 9-11 imagery in it. You can argue with the quality of the films themselves but at some point you know there's something there's something real in all of them well i've only seen the first part of uh shane godzilla my girlfriend and i started watching it and we were pretty unlucky when it came to the subtitle file that came with it so all the subtitles were like that really weird sort of google translate uh, style of language too bad. where you could kind of tell what was being said but it had kind of an absurdist quality to it. Um, but I liked the premise of that movie because that movie was all about a national bureaucracy dealing with a crisis, mm -hmm. which is a pretty interesting premise. I'd like to give that one another try sometime, perhaps uh, when a better SRT file is available. Godzilla, king of the monsters, alive, surging up from the depths of the sea on a tidal wave of terror to wreak vengeance on mankind. Godzilla, king of the monsters, it's alive. A gigantic beast dotting the earth, crushing all before it in a cyclonic cavalcade of electrifying horror, raging through the streets on a rampage of total destruction. For about 50 years, it was very hard to watch the Japanese version of the 1954 Godzilla in North America. And that's because the rights to the film were bought by some company or other, and they put out their own re-edit of the film where they took out 40 minutes of it, and they added 20 new minutes that they shot with American actors. Notably, Raymond Burr uh, stars in the American version as an American reporter named Steve Martin. <laughs> Not that Steve Martin. <laughs> it was a little bit before his time. But he plays American reporter Steve Martin. He sees Godzilla uh, destroying Tokyo, and he says, Excuse me! <laughs> 
Raymond Burr as Steve Martin's character in Leap of Faith in Godzilla. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, uh, he plays an American reporter who is in Japan visiting his old friend, Dr. Sarazawa. Um, but hilariously, he never occupies the frame at the same time as Dr. Sarazawa. You've got all these scenes that are clearly shot on different film stock. Uh, in 1985, there was a Japanese film called The Return of Godzilla, which was a reboot. It was going to be a direct sequel to the original film. Well, a company bought that film, The Return of Godzilla, and they hired Raymond Burr again to appear in new scenes that they... <laughs> to, in- to reprise his to, classic role of Steve, of Steve, Steve Martin. Martin. Well, everyone in the film calls him Mr. Martin at this point, because by that point, Steve Martin was a well-known comedian and actor (laughs) but Raymond Burke comes back and he shot all of his scenes in one day so it's just a normal movie but then it keeps cutting to these American scenes where he's at the Pentagon just saying things like no conventional weaponry of any kind will only confuse and anger Godzilla and it has one of my favorite lines in any movie which is Raymond Burr says just for the record general 30 years ago they never found any corpse (laughs) And sorry, what was the case for this vulgarized American version of Godzilla? Oh, you know, I think it was just like American audiences. They're they're not like culturally mature enough to just see a movie with exclusively Japanese people in it. I mean, yeah, you got you got to have an American guy who's there adding nothing to the film, just constantly at the side of the frame, waiting for his old friend, Dr. Sarazawa to come meet him. There's one more thing I wanted to say about the film in praise and appreciation of it. Once again, having never seen the original Godzilla, I love the way that it ends on what should be a note of finality because they've neutralized the threat of Godzilla. But the conclusion is ultimately left very open-ended. The scientist has that monologue about how, well, if nuclear tests continue, I expect we'll see Godzilla again. Of course, the implication is, well, of course, you're going to see Godzilla again. And that's both the filmmakers realizing that they've stumbled on something with the potential to make money in the future, you know, something that audiences love. But I also think it's channeling something which is, you know, one of my favorite themes in a lot of post-war Japanese cinema, which is this idea that, you know, modernity and kind of progress, technological and social progress, the march of those things is completely ineluctable, but there's also something tragic about that. This is something we explored in our episode on the Yashijiro Ozu film, Good Morning, which is in many ways quite a buoyant and funny film. But like, you know, every single one of Ozu's films, has this kind of deep melancholy running through it about what this, you know, new society means and what it's going to do in in transforming the traditional values and institutions of national and cultural life. One of the stars of this film, of course, as I guess you pointed out before, also plays Akiru, which is a wonderful film, in some ways very similar to Ingmar Bergman's Wild Strawberries, about an aging bureaucrat contemplating death while also trying to navigate Japan's post-war bureaucracy to get a park built. It's a really beautiful and tender film. It's come up on the podcast, so we haven't done it, but perhaps the best example of this would be Ozu's film Tokyo Story, which might be his most famous film, which broadly centers on an elderly couple uh, who've come into Tokyo sometime after the war. I think probably this film came out just uh, within a year or two of, of Godzilla, around the same time. Um, you know, they, cu- they come into Tokyo, which is this bustling metropolis, you know, and their family, who are, you know, now these uh, kind of white-collar urban professionals, don't really have any time for them. They're completely overwhelmed by the city. 
You know, like all of Ozu's films, it's very beautiful, very tender, very slow. It doesn't make any grand pronouncements about whether this is good or bad. It feels like it's just kind of observing and inviting you to partake in its melancholy. Obviously, a film like Godzilla deals with very different themes, very different kind of film, a film made for a mass audience, all the rest of it. But I think in the end of it, you have something very similar. You know, you find this theme again and again throughout Japanese cinema, this grappling with modernity and kind of what it means. And these films which pose the question again and again, you know, and answer it in different ways, but I think in terms of the famous films, don't really answer it in a way that's overtly reactionary. You have all of these films that pose this question in different ways and kind of uh, in varying degrees answer it in different ways. You know, what did modernity bring us? You know, often the answer is, you know, it brought us labyrinthine bureaucracy. It brought us the atomic bomb. It brought us the breakdown of the family. It brought us fascism. Now, I'm sure there are exceptions to this. Um, You know, I'm not an expert on, you know, right-wing Japanese cinema at all. But it strikes me that all of the most memorable films that I've seen to come out of post-war Japan all kind of pose this question and answer it in broadly similar ways. There's always this undercurrent of kind of melancholy and tragedy about modernity, but they never feel reactionary. They're never insisting, you know, Ozu's films, for example, are never insisting, you know, we must go back to an age of, you know, the traditional family or something like that. I feel like in its own way, Godzilla's kind of doing that too. You know, as that scientist monologue at the end of the film suggests, you can't really go back. This is the world now. 